Hey, we finished Ephesians, and I'm sure you're wondering, what are we going to do now? Are we just done with the Bible, or what? And the answer is, is no. Uh, we're going to move to a new book. We're going to start a new book this morning, uh, another book that begins with the letter E. Do you have any guesses what it could be? Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel, Exodus, classic. Nobody even knows this book exists. Esther. Very good. We're going to start. Oh, and because it's on the screen. How long has that been up there? You guys are horrible guessers. If that's been up there this whole time. Is I just trying to trick you or what? Ah, that's good. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. Man plans his way, but the Lord establishes our steps. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46, verse 8, Remember this and stand firm, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. My counsel will stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose believe that God is truly in control. Wondering how we think about that big statement. Is God really in control? Do I believe that everything happens at, at God's hand, so to speak? God establishes all my steps. As we read through certain parts of the Bible, it becomes clear how true this is and and how important this is. And there are parts of the Bible where this is much easier to see. And honestly, because God tells us precisely what he's doing. There are lots of examples where God wants us to see what's really going on, even though the people going through it have no idea. The first one that comes to mind, I think, and maybe the most famous is probably the the trial of Job. Uh, Job chapter 1 and 2, this whole story starts out, and we we get to kind of get this behind-the-scenes look of what's really going on. God and and the devil are having this conversation about God's servant Job. God gives permission for, for Satan to test Job, but Job had no idea that any of that was happening. Only the reader is sort of privy to this information, to this behind-the-scenes look. I also think of the book of Judges. It's sort of full of all these episodes where God just raises up all these deliverers. And throughout that whole book, we read how God is is working through those, those people, those judges or those deliverers to defeat Israel's enemy. The the people don't really know what's going on. All they know is they cry out to God, and then this sort of rescuer guy shows up. But the text makes it crystal clear over and over. It says, Yahweh did this. The Lord did this. He raised up. He was with them. He gave victory. God's people had no idea, but the Bible lets us in on the story. It, It helps us to see it, to understand what God is is truly doing, we we get to see that God's right in the middle of it. 
One of my favorite examples of this comes from 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, a chapter where God uh, moves Saul through a weird set of circumstances to actually be Israel's first king. Saul's dad, you guys have pets and stuff that you look after. Saul had donkeys. I'm not sure really what that was all about, but his dad had these donkeys. And I think it's part of young Saul's normal day, normal life stuff. When the donkeys got out, Saul's job was to go chase them down. And 1 Samuel 9 begins that way. The donkeys are loose again. And you can just kind of see Saul going, ugh, fine, I'll go look for them. And the text tells us that these, even though these sort of dumb donkeys are loose, that Saul's just chasing them all over the land. Several parts of the land he's moving. But the whole time, Saul has no idea what this day is going to bring. But God did. It says in 1 Samuel 9.15, the day before Saul showed up, Yahweh had revealed to Samuel, hey, tomorrow about this time, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you anoint him to be prince over my people. He's going to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. So what started just with chasing down these donkeys leads Saul to this moment where where he's going to be anointed as the next king, as as the king of Israel. God established every step along the way. So it's easy for us to see what God's doing when we have so many examples like that in the Bible. It's easy for us to see what God's up to. Easier for us to say, well, yeah, God's in control. It's right here. But what about when we don't know what God is really doing? What about when we don't see what God is up to? What about for Job or for Saul? They didn't know what God was doing. As far as they were concerned, God had nothing to do with it. God was nowhere near their situation. And I think we need to think about that for our own life. How do we think about that for our day-to-day sort of experiences? We can't see what God's doing all the time. We don't get to read about our life like a Bible story. God doesn't send us a text message that says, hey, by the way, I'm in this. Don't worry. Just keep going. Sometimes it seems like God is nowhere to be found. And this morning, we're going to start studying this book called Esther. And Esther is a, a story unlike other parts of our Bible. We We don't get to be in on God's plan in Esther. There's no verse in these 10 chapters that says God was doing this or God was up to that. In fact, God's name isn't even mentioned in this whole book. There's no reference to his actual name, Yahweh. No one even utters like that general name, Lord or or, or God. It's just this whole story where God seems not here. I've read it a bunch and I can tell you no one prays to God. God doesn't send someone with some kind of vision, tell them what to do. There's no mention of God's law or His Word. 
No matter how many times you, you read it, there's not even uh, one teeny tiny miracle. It just seems to be a story that God's not really involved in. If you're familiar with this story, you might even argue that this book's main characters aren't exactly on fire for Jesus, if I could say it that way. They do some things that are kind of seriously questionable. Makes us wonder about who they are. Esther and Mordecai are are their names, and we're going to learn a lot about them in the weeks ahead, but they kind of seem to be playing by a different set of rules. They do some questionable things. And let me say this too about Esther. The the author is is very silent about their motives, about what these two are, are doing. We get zero insight into what we should think about what these people are doing, about what God thinks about what these people are doing. There's just nothing. We don't get little phrases that tell us that God was up to something, that, that God was moving in the hearts of someone here. There's just none of that. It's storytelling that, that leaves us wanting more. It can be frustrating when we feel like we don't really have the whole story. We don't get the motives. We, we don't get the intentions. It's a strange little story. With all that kind of combined, you may be thinking, uh, Pastor Jay, I think maybe we could have chosen a different book. Maybe Ecclesiastes wasn't a bad choice or Exodus or something. You're not exactly selling this. And, and I know that. And it's a fair question for us to ask, why, why study Esther? And I believe I have an answer for you. Uh, I think as we look at this particular story where it looks like God's nowhere to be found, We're given an answer to a question that that people ask a lot throughout life. I bet there's a bunch of you even in here this morning that have asked this question. Is God really in control? And Esther helps us answer that question. It's a, a story in our Bible given to us by God so that we can know without a doubt God is in control no matter how it may look. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, Whatever was written in former days, talking about the Old Testament, which includes Esther, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Esther is a story that we know is purposed to to fill us with hope. From the first reader all the way to today, Esther is here to give you hope. Hope in what God has done and is doing and will do, past and present and future. Esther fills our life with hope. And today I just kind of want to whet your appetite a little bit for this book. Uh, We're going to get into it next week. We'll start with chapter one. But today is kind of like, you know, going to a restaurant. Not sure if we're even familiar with that anymore. But when the, the, you know, the server walks by with that tray of food for another table and you're like, what is that? I'm so hungry. I want that. That's kind of what we're trying to do today. 
I just want you to, to, to be excited about what's going on in this book. And as we start diving in, I, I recognize something pretty overwhelming. I mean, the Old Testament is just really big. And when you look at it, I mean, it's, it's over two-thirds of your Bible. This part's my Old Testament, this part's my New. It's a lot. And, and how do we know this story? And, you know, I'm only asking us to look at just a few pages of this book. I mean, Esther in my Bible is only this big. I don't know if you can see that, but it's just a couple of pages. So, you know, how do we get into this book? How are we going to understand what's going on? And, and, and I think we can do this today by, by talking about a few things. First, I want to talk about, like, the big story. I want to help you understand, like, how do we get to Esther? It's about a lot of stuff and people, and I don't really know what's going on. I think I can help us with a few snapshots today. And then I want to talk about what kind of story Esther actually is. And then third, just give you some sort of big themes that you can expect in the 10 weeks ahead. Okay? So first, the big story. The big story. What are these important snapshots of God's people? How do we get to Esther? The first snapshot would, would just be this, and, and these, are, these are really big, okay? I'm staying like 50,000 feet on the Bible. Like, this is a big picture, but I would say this. Where did it all begin? Uh, how, did it, how did it begin? And, and God's people start with one man named Abraham. This is back in the book of Genesis, and through Abraham and through his Line, God raises up this people, this nation called Jews. Through Abraham's line to his son Isaac, and from Isaac to Jacob and to Jacob's sons, this people starts to grow and grow and grow. And in Genesis, they find themselves in the land of Egypt. And because of their size, Pharaoh of Egypt, once it goes from the one that liked them to a new one who didn't know them, He's like, these people are too big. We've got to do something. And so he makes them their slaves. That's kind of the first snapshot. The second snapshot of God's people is after Egypt. Okay, So they're in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. After Egypt, God, God eventually frees his people. Okay, And when he gets them out of that situation, he enters into a covenant with them takes them to a land he promised them, and he eventually allows them to flourish. King David is this great king after Saul. He gets this great idea to build a big temple. His son Solomon decides to actually build it. And in the land, for just a brief moment, God's people are just doing really well. It doesn't last very long, but for a, like for a second, things are really good for God's people. That leads us to their failure. That's kind of the third snapshot. Israel failed to obey God's instruction. Before all that started, Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy 28. He says this, If you'll not obey the voice of the Lord, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I am commanding you today, then all these curses are going to come upon you and overtake you. And the Lord's going to scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other. Well, Israel did fail to obey, and God was true to his word. 
That's exactly what happened. They're scattered and they're exiled by this Babylonian king. They get kicked out of their land and they're forced to live in a different land and they're under the heavy hand of God's judgment. This last little snapshot I want to give you is about God's people still having hope. And I would call it like back to the land, kind of. (laughs) Okay? In Jeremiah 30, verse 3, Jeremiah writes this, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, and I'm going to bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they're going to take possession of it. Even though they were in exile, God's people had hope that they would one day return, and that happened. King Cyrus, or Cyrus the Great, would be the one to end that exile and allow God's people to go back into their home. It's just a few books before this one. In Ezra chapter 1, two books right before this one, you'll read all about this. This king, it says, "...the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he makes this proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. He says in verse 3, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go back to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, or rebuild that temple. Okay, so we're getting really close now to the time of Esther. God's people are allowed to go back. Again, kind of, a few of them go. Starts with a guy with a really funny name. If you don't like your name, be grateful your mom and dad didn't name you Zerubbabel. Uh, he goes first. And shortly after him, another guy named Ezra goes back and they travel to, to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple in the city. Two books in your Bible. Again, right before Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. That's what those two are all about. Rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city. And we see this this great kind of struggle that they go through to do this once again, okay? And that gets us ready for Esther. That kind of gets us in, into this spot. But you need to know that most of the Jews didn't return. Most of God's people didn't go back. So God's blessing is now on God's people again, and the temple is built, and practices are reinstated, and that covenant is in effect again, and people are reconfirmed, and and all this is going on. But for the Jews who stayed behind, I'm sure they were wondering, what about us? Is God still for us, even though we didn't go back to Jerusalem? Is God still in control? Is God still with us? They're asking all these questions. I think those are the questions on the mind of some of the people in the book of Esther. And that gets us into this story. And, you know, I don't want to send you into a deep snooze with with a bunch of Bible history. But these are real events. These these kings' names, I know they're funny, but these are real kings. This is real history. King Cyrus, who, who got that ball rolling for the Jews to go back, he died about 10 years after that famous decree to allow them to return. And He was replaced by his son and that Persian empire just really remained kind of powerful in in its presence. And then his grandson took over and he got to be king for like a week. And he was replaced by Darius. And Darius' son is known as Xerxes. That was his Greek name. 
And his Hebrew name, which I've practiced a million times this week, is Ahu, <laughs> I messed it up, Ahazarus. It's really hard to say. I did the Google thing, like, how do you say this word? I did it a hundred times, and I'm still messing it up. I think because he gave so many different ways to say it. But it's Ahazarus. That's his name, and that's the king in Esther 1.1. It says in Esther 1.1, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over all these provinces, 127. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. This is that king. This is where we're at in history. That's where we're at in the big story. Now I want to talk about the story of Esther, okay? This particular part of the story, just for a minute. What do we need to know about this? Well, our story, even though it's very, you know, different from the kind of stories we normally have in the Bible, it's it's different in its absence of God. I told you that. That's that's really important. Um, Different in its, you know, absence of kind of Bible expectations. It's different, but it belongs in our Bible without question. Even in the way it begins, we, we find some familiarity, some similarity to the way some books before it have begun. Joshua and Judges and Samuel, they all begin with this same phrase. And it's like the Bible, the author of this story is just forcing us to connect it to Israel's history. It's this little phrase now, in the days. That's this one little word and we see it from from Moses to Joshua and when it transitioned from Joshua to the Judges and from Judges to Samuel, three stories that are full of trouble for God's people. Joshua was, was a mess at the end, and Judges, I preached through that a, a year ago or so. That was a total mess, right? And Samuel is, isn't free of trouble either. And now we find a story that begins the exact same way. And once again, God's people find themselves in trouble, even though they as you'll see, they don't really know it. Again, more on that in the weeks ahead. But, but Esther is meant to be taken as, as history. The, the author of this book, whose identity just remains unknown, he wanted us to read it that way. This really happened. You don't need to read it any differently than any other part of your Bible. And many of the Bible's stories are, are told this way. It's, it's, it's a story because we learn from stories. I don't even know if you guys realize how much of your life is filled with stories. We, I tell my kids stories all the time. We love stories. We read them and we, we listen to them because we learn from them. We use stories to share what's important. And we, we use stories to highlight what we want other people to know. And we should think about the stories in the Bible and in particular this story of Esther with the understanding that God is using this story for a reason. He's trying to tell us something important. It's a story with with a purpose. It's God's story, and there's important truth there that he wants us to know. And and I've seen how God uses stories throughout the Bible to, to draw people back into a right relationship with him. He uses stories to make us go, oh, I'm, I'm like running away from God and I, want, I need to fix this. And he uses stories to, to help us understand what belonging to him is all about. 
story doesn't tell us everything. Like other parts of the Bible's story, there are things we wish we could know, but again, the author is just selective for a reason. He, he tells us precisely what he wants us to know because he's making a point, even though we wish he would tell us more. But the story of Esther is intentional and it has a purpose and it shouldn't be overlooked or dismissed too quickly. We need this book because God wanted us to have it. Here's what we need to know about narrative or story. That's what it's called, narrative. Uh, the, the, the Bible writers are, are doing more than just reporting facts. When we think about the way like a, a news reporter or something similar to that, it's just facts. Here are the facts. Boom, boom, boom. That is not the way the Hebrew authors told stories. They carefully chose and they even would arrange the story for a purpose. They don't always tell stories like you and I think about time. You and I love a story that moves according to time. This happened and this happened and this happened. And when, the, when an author sort of breaks those rules or violates those rules of, of time, we're like, what is this? You can't do that. Well, the Bible authors aren't limited like that. They didn't think about time like that, about chronological order. When it comes to narrative, it's, I'm going to use big words, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. It describes what happens. It doesn't give us a pattern for living. We think about Esther especially, you guys, that's going to be really helpful. This is telling us what happened. It isn't saying this is how we should live as well. Descriptive, not prescriptive. But the author has a point, and he, he does this. He selects these events. He arranges them in such a way so that his big idea becomes impossible to miss. And Esther is here for our benefit. Again, it fills us with hope, and it helps us to see and think rightly about God, especially that he is in control. And that's where I want to go next with these themes. What are some themes that we can expect with this book in the weeks ahead? And that's the first one. God is in control. What themes can you expect? God is absolutely in control. I think we know this. I think we, we tip our hat to this. But we need to grow in our understanding of this reality. God is in control of the weather and animals and creation. God is in control of everything. He controls big stuff like whole nations. And he also controls little things like one particular person. He cares about the whole and he cares about the, the singular. If you think of it like a pie, whole pie, slice of pie. God cares about all of it but bigger because that's my dumb illustration. Okay, providence, that's the big Bible word here, providence. And I want to kind of help us think about that, that God is in control. We say it's, this is about God's providence. It's his way of controlling uh, creatures and actions and circumstances throughout the normal and ordinary course of human life. Let me, let me give you a junior high sentence because that's what I like to do. God is in control 
and we see it in normal life, no miracles needed. Okay? God doesn't need to, to work a miracle into this to, to still be in control. Normal life, no miracles needed. So God's providence in the book of Esther, it's just going to be the driving force of this whole story. We're not going to be able to help but see the mystery of God's hand. And he shows us in this story how one small decision and one even tiny little action can be the thing that God uses to accomplish a huge purpose. One small thing resulting in this big change. So how do we apply that? God is in control. How do we think about this personally? You guys, even when God appears to be the least visible, even when it seems like, you know, I don't even know if God's here. When we're tempted to think God doesn't care, God's forgotten me, maybe God doesn't really love me. The book of Esther is going to help us see God is absolutely at work. He's always at work. We're going to see in this story, even before the, the evil villains on the scene and his plot unfolded, even before we know his name, God already had the right people in the right place to help. That's so crazy. I just am trying to think of a way to say that rightly. And it's, it's, it's maybe this, long before you even know you have a problem, long before you, you realize you need him, God is already there and he's been there. God's always in control. And the book of Esther, it just becomes the best example to remind us of that precisely because God seems absent. Esther teaches us that God is already where we're going to be tomorrow. So even in the worst place, God's people could possibly be. God's in control. He's ruling. He's in charge. All things are working for his glory and the good of his people. Like the Jews who lived through this, they, they didn't know what God was doing. They just had to live it. And as we live our lives day to day, even in junior high, we find ourselves in the same reality. We find ourselves with the same God who's still in control despite how it may appear. Huge truth. What else are we going to learn? Not only is God in control, but we're going to learn that there's a real spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle. That should sound familiar, right? Just exactly how we ended the book of Ephesians. There's a, a real spiritual battle. Esther is a great illustration of the kind of battle at hand, a, a spiritual battle where the people of God are in danger and the promises of God are being attacked. We know a little bit about this battle already, but here we're going to get this great illustration of it. Despite how it looks, those of us who put our trust in Christ have nothing to fear. Some great truths come out of this. Genesis 12, 3, God says, I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's faithful to defend Trying to take us out because of our faith. I don't know if this is gonna, okay. Because of our faith, we see, we have no reason to try to fight that fight on our own. 
God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And, and God's enemies, no matter how strong they appear, no matter how desperate this situation looks, and you're going to see in Esther, there's a moment where we're going to be like, yikes, this is bad. This does not look good for God's people. We have no reason to fear. We can rely on God and depend on him and trust in him. And I'm just thinking about this junior high group and thinking about you and as you face more and more of this crazy world, the older you get, and you're going to see that it's just standing opposed to God and so many people opposed to God's word and, and God, God's expectations for them as their creator. Oh man, a book like Esther is just going to be more and more precious to you. As you see this, that, wow, God is in control. He's faithful to defend. He's, he's faithful to fight. He provides us what we need to stand strong against those attacks. Let's look at another one. Number three, it helps us realize that we aren't in control of our life. I realize this is very similar to the first one but it's definitely worth repeating. If, if God's in control, well then, you guys, you can't be. If God's in control, and sometimes we just need to think about the whole thing. If God's in control, I can't be in control. And, and I believe Esther is going to instill this principle into your life. God still directs you through the ordinary things of life. You can think you're in control, but you are not. We have no idea what God is up to. I can just think of even my own life. If I just start from like my college years on, so many little things that change the course of my life. From a college student to a guy who put shingles on a house. And I did that for years. It's really hard work but I kind of liked it. And from that to, to carpentry and then construction and then back to a church that I thought I would never be back to. And then just one random day, a youth pastor saying, hey, you should serve in student ministries and be just a leader guy. And from that to a lay youth pastor, to an on-staff pastor, to moving across the country to be your youth pastor. It's crazy when I think about all those little, small, tiny events that led to all of this, and some of those were disappointing moments, some difficult, some really great, but as I think about all of it, it just seemed kind of so normal. Just n nothing special. Those insignificant little details, but when we look at the whole thing, it's, it's remarkable. I had a plan, but this, and this is not it. I know it's God's plan, and I love it. And I mean, just even thinking about you guys, and some of you are here because of something crazy called COVID-19. What is that about? Something so normal and yet not normal, but it affected everyone's life. And how many of you are here because some friend was like, there's nothing else to do. This church is open. Do you want to go? And you came, and you're here, and you, you heard the gospel. I was in that giant tent all last year on Tuesday nights, screaming about the book of Ephesians and the gospel, and a, a bunch of kids came up and said they wanted to become Christians. It's awesome. 
God is in control and you are not. And he uses the most random day-to-day stuff to accomplish his will. Let me give you one more and then I'll stop because I have a bunch of these. I'm just going to give you one more. Number four, it helps us to see that things haven't changed much. And I think I, yeah, our worlds are similar. That's the, that's the PowerPoint version of that sentence. Our worlds haven't changed much. We live in a world that is not unlike the time of the story of Esther. They lived in a culture that was totally hostile to, to God and, and Faith, it's a, it's a world that's highly political. It's a nation that's dead in its sin. It calls bad good and good bad. It, it wasn't always easy to do the right thing, difficult to respond well. So similar. Even if we think about this from the Christian perspective, you know, we're not perfect. We, we still sin, even though we desire to live for Christ. We aren't perfect. Esther wasn't. Her cousin Mordecai, also not perfect. Yet God was working in their lives, even as he seeks to work in your life and in my life. He used them to accomplish his purpose. Are you letting him use you? Are you letting God work in your life despite what's against you or for you, whatever situation, good or bad? If you're a Christian this morning, just ask, am I living for Christ? doing anything. Esther's this young girl, and we're going to read her story next week. In so many ways, she's just like us. Just like us. She had to make a tough decision, and she had no sign. There was no angel over her shoulder telling her what to do. There was no burning bush. She had no idea how it would end, but you know what? She just did something. She stepped out in faith. That doesn't mean that Esther is a hero. That doesn't mean that her whole life and everything that she did should be imitated. In fact, there's some things in here that we should go, yeah, we don't want to be like Esther. But she stepped out in faith and she risked her life for the future of God's kingdom. Are you doing anything like that? Our worlds are so similar and as we learn how God directed their steps and how they reacted and responded, we need to ask ourselves the same kinds of questions. Am I letting God direct me? Am I fighting him in some way? Am I resisting God in in some part of my life? Am I completely just running from him? And if I really believe I'm a Christian, am am I truly living for him? so many great themes in this little book, and I've enjoyed reading it, getting ready to preach through it, and it's, it's tricky. There's some parts to it, but I know it's going to be a book that really, and I'm praying this way too, that impacts you, that helps you see no matter what, God is in control. It's going to be a truth that I promise you. I know many of you need it already today, but if not today, tomorrow for sure truth that we, we, we need to hold on to. I'm going to ask you to do one kind of youth pastory thing for me, a little favor. As we preach through this book in the next, you know, 10 or 11 weeks, I'm not a prophet. I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm hoping 10. I want you to do me a favor. I, I think you can read it 
one time every week. I know some of your parents have you doing a bunch of other, you know, stuff, devotions and all stuff, and that's great. I wonder if you wouldn't also add in just reading through the book of Esther. You can read through it in about 20 minutes or so, okay? It's a great book. I think you could even do it in one sitting, but if you'll do that every week, I promise you're going to get so much more out of it. Let God's word sort of fill your life and your heart, and it'll be so helpful. Again, let me leave you with kind of our big idea. Just because it seems like God is absent doesn't mean he isn't in control. Okay, it doesn't mean he isn't totally present. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning just to prepare our hearts for what's ahead. Lord, this is a, an incredible book. Uh, Lord, your, your word to us is so valuable. Like so many writers in Scripture say, it's our treasure. It's the most valuable thing. It's the sweetest thing. It's our greatest joy It's our most valued thing. God, we love your word. And I pray as we study the book of Esther and and the weeks ahead, God, that you just help us to think right about it. God, draw our attention to the truths of your word. Help us to learn them, to learn about you. God, to learn about how you still are in control, how you direct our steps no matter how it looks. We ask it also while you'd help us put those truths into practice. Lord, thank you for this group, so encouraged by them, and I pray that our our time ahead would be profitable, that it'd be helpful, but God, more than anything, it would honor you. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.